Micah, I'm the kind of the relief preacher for today, um, so that Johnny Richards can have a bit of a rest after a busy weekend. Um, yeah, I'm a member here at the Gate Church, and uh, I'm really excited to be here and to carry on getting stuck into this series in Mark. I'll pray for us uh, before we start, and then we'll just dig right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we hear your word, as we see Jesus at work in history, and that by your Holy Spirit, you continue to work in us as well. Uh, Father, we uh, see you only dimly at best. And so we ask that as we look at Jesus this morning, that you would show yourself to us more clearly. That you would be uh, transforming how we approach you. And that nothing would stop us in our running to Jesus. And in finding in him all we need. Help us to hear clearly what you have to say to us in this passage and to grow in love and worship and faith in him, the true and living God. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, So like I said, if you've been with us at the Gate Church for the past few weeks, you'll hopefully be aware that we've just begun a pretty epic journey through uh, the Gospel of Mark, and that's going to take us till about Easter, I believe. And what's wonderful about doing that is as we, do, as we do it, we get to see the unfolding story of who Jesus is and what he came to do, not just as um, a bunch of unrelated kind of small pieces, uh, but as one big storyline that kind of weaves together those pieces um, to tell what this one story about who Jesus is. Uh, Johnny Richards, uh, a few weeks ago, described the beginning of the Gospel of Mark in this way. <coughs> Aslan is on the move. <coughs> Uh, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan is the king of the country of Narnia. And for a long time, he'd not been seen anywhere in Narnia, and the country had been held under a curse in which there'd be no new life, uh, just an endless winter. And when Aslan arrives back in the country, we can't help but see life and hope begin to break through into this cursed land as if the curse and the, the king are simply just unable to coexist. Uh, snow melts and flowers grow and um, you can almost taste that the curses that this land and that the people in it have suffered under is slowly but surely coming to an end. And as we open the Gospel of Mark and see the people of God living under Roman oppression, longing for the days when Israel would have a king to protect them, Jesus steps into the pages of the Bible. And we see that even in a world that suffers under death and sin and sickness, that hope and new life, the hope and new life of the kingdom of God can't help but begin to break in. Uh, so I think one of the big questions that we're, we're meant to ask ourselves as we read Mark, and one of, the, one of the big questions that Mark seeks to answer for us, especially in this passage, is uh, now that the kingdom of God is coming, What does it mean to become a citizen of the kingdom? Uh, What does it take to enter into the kingdom? This kingdom that's bursting at the seams with new life. Uh, This is a question we're supposed to ask ourselves. And I think that it's a question that this passage answers with just one word. And that's faith. Faith is the one defining thing in this part of Mark that unites the incredibly unlikely and holds back the seemingly obvious. Understanding what faith is and what it means to live by faith is integral to understanding this passage. Uh, You'll see it in verse 34. Uh, Jesus says, it's the woman's faith 
that makes her well. In verse 36, uh, Jesus' instructions to Jairus are really simple. He says two things. He says, don't be afraid, just believe. Uh, At the end of the passage in uh, chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus is amazed at the crowd's lack of faith. Mark wants us to understand uh, from this passage what true and living faith looks like. But he also wants us to understand what it doesn't look like. He he does this by giving us uh, two examples of a true and living faith. And then he ends the passage with a warning. Uh, So what I'm going to do first is we'll introduce ourselves to the two main characters that Jesus meets in chapter 5. And we'll learn from them what a true and living faith looks like. So the two main characters you'll probably be aware are Jairus and an unnamed woman. Uh, The first character Jesus comes across is Jairus. He's a a synagogue official and (coughs) he's responsible kind of for the running of the day-to-day life of a small synagogue in Judea. And when you look at Jairus, you're meant to meet a religious and cultural insider. Um, It's a man who's heavily respected. He's got enough kind of cultural capital to approach Jesus face-to-face with no embarrassment. Uh, Jairus would have been considered by many people to have lived a morally upstanding life. And you'd you'd expect for him to normally have nothing to fear from approaching a little-known carpenter from Nazareth. That should be what our expectation of Jairus is like if we just read up to the first half of verse 22. He's this kind of cultural and religious insider living a normal and happy life who might or might not be interested in Jesus. But instead... Mark describes a desperate man, a man with nowhere else to turn. He has a sick and a dying daughter. Jairus doesn't find himself face to face with Jesus. He finds himself at Jesus' feet. And then nestled within Jesus' interaction with this respectable Jairus, we come across a very different, desperate character. Uh, This woman couldn't be more different from him, in fact. She's poor. Uh, she spent every money she has on doctors in the hope of finding a cure for a disease that has caused her suffering for over 12 years. She's likely run out of options for this cure, and she'd be looking down the barrels of her very miserable and short life. And what's more, she finds herself isolated from the people of God, uh, declared to be ceremonially unclean. Uh, in God's instructions in the book of Leviticus to Israel as a nation living with God as king, as to what that ought to look like, God says this, he says, when a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge. Uh, Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as is her bed during her monthly period, and anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches them will be unclean. (coughs) They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Uh, I'd understand if that felt quite difficult to listen to for many of us, especially with kind of 21st century ears. Um, but for a developing country in the middle of a desert where disease was really quickly spread and medicine was at best kind of rudimentary, the danger of the spread of disease was a, re- a real one. Uh, in chapter 13 of Leviticus, kind of similar pronouncements are given to, to fabric with patches of mold in, and houses would dampen the walls that are declared unclean and face being torn down. It was a really serious matter. And on top of that, Israel were told by God when they saw uncleanness like this, 
They were to remember a deeper, spiritual uncleanness that infected each and every one of them. They were to look at the ceremonially unclean as a picture or a living parable of a spiritual sickness that had them all in its grip. As a result, when something that was once unclean became cleansed, washing would occur and sacrifices would be made. This is meant to be another small picture of the cleansing and the sacrifice that each of them needed. Each picture of what was wrong with the world was meant to be a signpost for Israel towards what was wrong with their hearts. And that is quite easy for me to say, uh, but for for this woman, this is a, a reality she has to face day after day after day, alienated from the people of God, suffering physical pain in poverty. You, you, might, you might not have noticed, but this woman isn't even given a name in this passage. Um, she's uh, shunned, she's suffering, and she's right on the outside in the fringes of society. It's easy to imagine that this woman would be the complete opposite of the insider Jairus. But as different as they are in some ways, they are united in their responses to Jesus. You'll see it in verses 22 and 33, uh, when Jairus and this unnamed woman come face to face with Jesus, both of them fall at his feet. And it is here, at the feet of Jesus, that Mark shows us what it looks like to have a true and living faith in him. So he gives us, I think, two kind of two marks of what a true and living faith looks like. Um, they are the recognition of and desperation for the divine power of Jesus and the recognition of and desperation for the divine compassion of Jesus. That's his power and his compassion. We'll have a look at those together. So firstly, the recognition of and desperation for the divine power of Jesus. And I think the first thing that it's really important to recognise here is that Jesus' power is quite obviously divine. Uh, I I want you to kind of close your eyes and imagine for a second that you were present at these healings. Imagine you had kind of like the first half, two-thirds of this book. Uh, You had all of the promises of God that God was going to show up. Uh, That he was going to do something about sin. Uh, That he was going to arrive and put an end to death. That he was going to restore those who have been separated from him to himself. Imagine you were there and Jesus shows up. I think we're meant to look up from the pages of our Old Testament to the face of Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, and say, it's you. You're the one I was waiting for. Jesus' power over sickness and over death, over the, the stain of sin in the world, is a divine power. It's the power of God. Only God can do what Jesus does. And when it comes to it, this fact will be the dividing line between those who follow Jesus to the end and those who eventually end up rejecting him and opposing him. Jesus arrives in the Gospel of Mark and is anointed by God's Holy Spirit. And at his arrival, he brings with him God's kingdom. You might remember that from the beginning of the Gospel. In his miracles, he demonstrates an authority over sickness and over the spiritual realm. He has an authority to forgive sins. Jesus claims as his own the authority that only God can claim. And both Jairus, the insider, and this anonymous woman recognize (coughs) his authority. And their response is to fall at his feet. 
And this is the first mark of a true and a living faith. The one that we see in the response of both Jairus and this woman. <coughs> it is the recognition that Jesus comes with the very power of God over sin and sickness and death. It is the recognition that we don't have the power to fix the mess ourselves. It's not only the recognition of Jesus' ability to rescue, but it's also admitting our own inability to rescue ourselves. Listen to Jairus' only words to Jesus. You'll find them in verse 23. He says, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll live. I, I, I don't think I need to labour this point. It's just enough to say that uh, Jairus holds together both the truth about how bleak the situation he finds himself in is and the truth that Jesus has the divine power to do something even about this. This is what it looks like to recognise both Jesus' power and to be desperate for it. You see, the coming to the end of yourself, to the realisation that you do not have within you you do not have it within you to fix the mess you find yourself in but there is one who does similarly the unnamed woman in verse 28 after years of setbacks and dashed hopes and suffering she takes one look at jesus and she says if i just touch his clothes i'll be healed this woman recognizes that in jesus there is such power that even to touch the hem of his robes is to be made well. This is what a true and living faith looks like. It is the clinging to Jesus, because apart from him there is no hope. <coughs> but in him, <coughs> there is the power of God himself. So that's the first mark of a true and living faith. And what we'll do now, we'll look at the second, which is the recognition of and the desperation for the divine compassion of Jesus. I've said this a few times, I think. I say it quite a lot. Um, somebody once described God as not being all power, no personality. Um, we're often uh, kind of, we, we, it's very common to describe God in terms of impersonal attributes that speak to his strength or his knowledge, but make no mention of his kindness. Jesus is not unmoved by the plight of lesser beings who scuttle around him. It might be very easy to think of God like that. But if your, con if your conception of God is like that, then it is smaller and different to the one that we see in the pages of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is moved by compassion for those around him. The words he uses to Jairus' daughter, Talitha Kum, are the words of a parent, gently waking their little girl from asleep. When nobody else thinks to give a name to this anonymous suffering woman. Jesus calls her daughter. When no one else thinks her worthy of a name or all that much attention, Jesus gives her an identity of great honor and tenderness, one that is derived from her relationship with him. And can I just say that this, this really matters because it actually changes the kind of kingdom we're talking about. Uh, Johnny's explained this to us before. He said, he said to us, doesn't he, the king shapes the kingdom into his image. If we're to be citizens of this kingdom of God, then we too are to be shaped by this king. Um, I've got maybe two implications uh, of that for us today. The first is that welcome into God's kingdom 
is extended beyond the religious and the cultural insiders to the outsiders and to the seemingly hopeless. Both Jairus and this unnamed woman come with only one thing, need. And Jesus welcomes them both with open arms on the basis of their faith. Uh, There might be uh, some people here today or listening later on in the recording who are tempted to believe that perhaps they are beyond the compassion of God, beyond hope. I can reassure you that from this passage, Jesus welcomes not just the respectable, but the needy. And there might be some, there may, may be even some here today that believe to fall at the feet of Jesus in true need is to lose their credibility, to lose the respect of a watching world. And you might be right, but it will not be until you realize your need that you'll be willing to do so. As we can see with both of these characters, it is only the empty who are filled. So that's the first implication. The second one uh, is this. Citizens of the kingdom of God are called to look like their king. Christians are described in the Bible as being ambassadors for Christ. And that makes the church something of a little embassy. And the church is a pocket of people running their lives in the midst of the kingdom of this world according to the laws of a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. The church ought to reflect clearly the priorities and the motives of Jesus. Are we moved to meet need when we, when we see it? Is the way that we operate as a church designed to serve ourselves and our own agendas? Or is it designed to serve the needy and the poor in spirit? That is what faith in Jesus looks like. It is taking all that you know to be true about Jesus, letting it shape you and clinging to it in spite of the darkness, despite of the depth of your need. I should say as well though, beware the temptation to undersell this passage. Uh, we, We can very easily fall into the trap of believing that the appearance of tragedy in this world is simply due to our lack of faith. The point, though, of Jesus' miracles are not necessarily to show us what life ought to look like for the faithful, they're to show us what God's kingdom is like and to awaken a hunger for it. Jesus' miracles are a foretaste of a kingdom that is only yet seen in part. A full realisation is still to come and is an eternal one. We live currently in a world that is still broken and fractured by sin and death. And the appearance of tragedy and tragic circumstances are rooted in that reality. We mustn't believe that Jesus has somehow failed, or maybe even that we have failed him. No, instead the experience of pain ought to drive us all the more firmly to not place our hope in the kingdom of this world, but in God's kingdom. A true and living faith in Jesus must drive us from our suffering into the arms of the only one who is powerful enough and compassionate enough to intervene. So that's the example of what a true and living faith looks like. But this passage also ends with a warning. And all of that, all of what I've said, if that is true, if a true and living faith looks like this, then a false and a deadly faith 
means that deep down, we believe one of three things. It means we, we either don't believe that Jesus has the power to save, we don't believe that Jesus has the desire to save, or that we don't believe that Jesus needs to save us at all. I mean, kind of, it comes down to this, a false and a deadly faith either means that we don't believe Jesus is who he says he is, or we don't believe that we are who Jesus says we are. Ah, I wonder how lightly are you to take Jesus at his word here? How much does it thrill us when we hear that Jesus has both the power and the desire to save? Because there is a sharp edge to this passage. In, in chapter 6, Mark tells us that it is possible to grow up around Jesus, around these Bible promises, and to fail to recognise Jesus for who he truly is. <coughs> it is possible to grow up around Jesus and to just simply not get it. Uh, we've seen, haven't we, in the past few weeks, Jesus' very own family fall uh, victim to that and seek to gain control over him. In, in chapter 6, verse 3, the crowd at the synagogue take offence at him. Not because they don't know who he is, but because that knowing of him, they fail to recognise who he truly is. Those gathered around Jairus' home quickly switch from weeping to mocking laughter when Jesus assures Jairus of his daughter's safety. It is possible to know a lot about and maybe even to show a semblance of respect towards Jesus and not to have faith in him. And that's the sharp edge of this passage. And if you're, you're hearing this sermon and, and don't consider yourself a Christian, you might uh, be looking into the claims of Jesus for yourself and not consider yourself there yet. Uh, I'm really glad that you're listening to this and I want to invite you to keep looking. I'm especially glad that uh, you're listening to, to this one today because I want you to see that this is what God is like. He's king and he's kind. And it, as tempting as it can be, do not allow yourself to accept the lesser offers of small gods that are not both totally powerful and totally compassionate. But also see the sharp edge of this passage. It is possible for you to turn up to church because you find the concept of God interesting without having a personal and living faith. I think Mark was quite deliberate in completing a passage about faith with a warning. I don't think it was an accident. I think we need to take careful note here. It's it's to our peril that we very easily read the, the easy to read kind of fridge magnet verses of the Bible and we skip over its warnings. I think Mark intends to put a stone in our shoe at this point, and to, to stop us in our tracks. And we mustn't assume that this is a warning for someone else. There is only one antidote to a false and a deadly faith. That is to realise that we are the ones who are in a mess, who cannot escape in our own strength, and to cling to Jesus, to fall at his feet the one with the power to save treats us, treats us tenderly as a child. And the sharp edge of this passage is it's, it's designed to cut us deeply, but it ought to also drive us back to the only one who can heal. I'll pray for us as we close, and then we'll sing together of this awesome, compassionate God. 
Heavenly Father, it is only too easy to try and approach you in our own strength, with our assumed respectability, or to allow our doubts to hinder us from coming near. Remind us instead, please, of Jesus who came near to us, who showed compassion on us, and who alone can save us. And by your Holy Spirit, would we cling to him. Pray this for your glory and in his precious name.